You are listening to Fast Growth Funding, the podcast all about helping you demystify the world of AI investments. Sponsored by EAG Ventures, where entrepreneurs help entrepreneurs. This show is all about helping give as much value as possible to investors and entrepreneurs alike. So if you like what you hear, please do subscribe to the show and share this episode with your network to help us reach more people just like you. Thanks again. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fast Growth Funding. Guy, you're back again. It's good to see you. Yeah, I yeah, keep turning up to these things don't I? You do, you do. You must really love being here, which is great to see. Great to see. I love, I love the conversations, actually, all of them. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we're here to talk today about going down the legal road, talking about IP. We've got a very, very special guest who I'm going to introduce in a second. He's going to take us through this journey. But, Guy, you were really keen to bring this guest on. You've been talking about him for a few weeks. Do you want to just explain why this is such an important topic for investors and entrepreneurs alike? Sure. I mean, I, I work with a lot of startups. I work with a lot of early stage high growth companies. And I do think IP is often overlooked and how to kind of protect IP and actually generate additional value out of IP, whether that be from a you know a company valuation point of view or from actually a funding point of view. So really, I felt this was a, a, going to be a really interesting podcast for investors to listen to, but also entrepreneurs to give them a, a more fundamental understanding of the importance of IP and how they can use it to their advantage. And Keegan's just the perfect person to do this. If he doesn't say this in the, the introduction, I'll say it for him, but his law firm has achieved some remarkable kind of growth achievements over the last five years. So I'm, I'm sure, Keegan, you'll chip in and introduce yourself and tell us all about Caldwell IP. Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me on. You guys, I'm I'm happy to to join the podcast today, and happy to join from my office in London, which I spend a fair amount of time at each month. But I'm based out of our Boston office in the United States. I hope that this will uniquely position me to understand both the European and UK markets, as well as the markets in the United States, and the importance of considering an IP portfolio and the value that that can bring to a business, especially as it's related to artificial intelligence and machine learning companies and innovations. But before I jump into all that, I'll just give you a brief background on myself and our firm. I left a a larger firm to start Caldwell about seven and a half years ago. And the first year, it was really just me, as I had some obligations with some clients that prevented me from doing much business development. Then I hired one of my partners, now Micah Drayton, who runs our technology practice here. And so it was just him and I in a small one-person co-working space office on MIT's campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just on the other side of the Charles River from Boston. That was a learning experience for us in those early days. Interestingly, one of the things that has helped set us apart over the years has been the development of an AI technology that we helped co-develop with an outside firm where we can help essentially cut and paste a patent application into this tool, and it predicts which group of examiners it will go to at the patent office. You know, some of those examiners are very easy to work with and have high allowance rates. Some examiners are very challenging to work with and have low allowance rates. The national average for an allowance hovers around 60 Seven percent, I believe it is, and uh, ours today, because I already checked today, is ninety nine point three, 
percent offense rate. And I'm not sure of any other firms that are in the 90, 90% range, let alone in the 80s. I know only know of a couple. So th- that's been something that's really helped set us apart and might just bring it up because it's relevant to discussing AI as well. And part of how we have grown was adopting new technology. So we've grown quite a bit from those two guys in an office where we're the fastest growing law firm in the United States. Last year, we were the fastest growing intellectual property law firm three years in a row. In the last year, we've actually added a corporate practice as well to help support funding events for clients, to help fund set up new funds, and to help clients complete M&A, whether that's the buying of other companies or being purchased themselves, that uh, we support all of those things under under one roof now. So we've made that transition here in, in the last year from doing just IP to also adding the corporate practice. And it's been a, an exciting time and more growth than I had anticipated in the early days. I, it was just, I was going to be happy if it was just myself and this other guy. And now it's a living, breathing thing, much larger than myself, that provides me with like a lot of joy and meaning in my own life. But that's neither here nor there. So that, that's kind of the, the the basics of who I am and how we've gotten to where we're at today. That's brilliant. Thank you, Keegan. It's part of the story of so many startups. You know, it just started off as a simple thing and it grew into something completely unexpected. I have a cool story about this that I'll just give really quick. And that's that I was I was in Miami this last week where we have our annual holiday party in Miami. And I had the good fortune of bumping into Jeff Bezos while doing one of my morning workouts at the hotel gym and was actually introduced to him by someone that's been asking me for a job. He's someone that's always kind of been an inspiration that's grown something from small days in a, in a garage, right? We've all seen the pictures with him in the garage with you know, Amazon written on the wall. And so he was very curious to hear about our firm and all the things that we've accomplished from those very early days too. And it was, it's also clear his excitement and empathy for the challenges that high growth startups can have too. So, you know, it's a fun little thing that happened last week. Yeah. Just a few days that last round actually. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that excitement never kind of dies, even with someone like Bezos. <laughs> Still got it inside him. Yeah. And to his credit too, you know, this is someone that is one of the wealthiest men in the world and he was very gracious and had a lot of thoughtful thoughtful questions. And I think it was was just a reminder as as leaders of of companies and folks working with companies to put our best foot forward and we can get a lot done that way. Yeah, good stuff. Let's just move in now to talking about, you know, IP, obviously, you know, Keegan, there's probably no one better suited to talk about this subject than yourself, especially from a tech startup standpoint. But let's just jump into it because you know, I think for a lot of people, maybe myself included, when I think about IP, you think about something that comes maybe quite late in the company's, you know, journey where when they get, need to get bigger and bigger, the size kind of dictates the importance at which IP needs to come into the picture. Do you want to just explain why this is something that's so overlooked in the early stages of a tech startup? I think that it can be something that's that's often overlooked. And I would say that the biggest reason that this is overlooked is because startups generally have a finite amount of money and they need to spend about five times that amount of money in order to accomplish <laughs> what it is that they'd like to do, right? They're like, well, we've got, we've got five pounds that we need to spend 50 in order to accomplish what we need. And so how do we figure out on that budget what is the most important and what is not? And there's a lot of data that supports today, not data that I've generated, but data 
by outside sources that supports how much more value there is for startups and later grow, growth stage companies that have IP than those that don't. And uh, I'll, I'll rifle through some of those statistics later on in the interview today. So it's overlooked for financial reasons, I think, is part of it. Another part of this question is there are certain technology areas that haven't traditionally been areas where people would pursue intellectual property, but that have in recent years, it's become more and more important for folks to pursue in some of these areas that were less intuitive to pursue patents in particular. So I think it was very traditional throughout time, especially throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, to patent kind of hardware-related innovations that are related to, you know, even device components, all the stuff that's behind the screen in a television, that's some easily and intuitively protectable things. But what we didn't think about was things like in the areas of manufacturing technologies or in the area of fintech, or even today, now thinking about all of the areas that we can apply, because there's all these little industry segments within every industry where AI can now be meaningfully applied, where we can extract value when done the right way. And it's certainly the early days of doing that from building the technology perspective, but it's also the early days of doing it for protecting the technology with patents. And so it's a monetary thing. And then there's several other considerations as well, but I think it's, it's the monetary and that it's just not always been traditional for folks to do it. Or like with medical devices, for instance, it's always been you know intuitive that you would get most likely if you're an investor in the medical device world, while maybe on the software side, you might be over the last couple of decades less interested in whether a company has patents or not. And we'll talk more about the importance of that and how it's shifted later. But for a medical device company in the last 20 years, if you didn't have patents or anything in the biotech world, then you wouldn't do, you would get zero dollars of funding. You, you needed those from, from day one in order to do anything at all. And there were some very obvious reasons why people need, you need to have those things. It's not, when we say the word protected with a patent, it's, it's a bit misleading. So we don't really protect innovations with a patent. We receive a patent on it. That gives us the rights to stop others. It does not prevent the company from being sued by others. And so that's why I think that there's some, you know, it's implied almost that when we apply for a patent and a company receives a patent, that somehow they'll not be able to be sued. That's not really true. A patent grants you the ability, well, it grants you a monopoly on whatever technology the patent office has granted you in whatever jurisdiction for a certain amount of time where you can stop others from doing that thing. And so it really protects your area that that you're working in. So I just wanted to provide some clarity of that. And then the other thing before we dive too much deeper, I know I'm getting long-winded, is most of what we'll talk about today will be patents. Of course, when we talk about intellectual property in general, we're thinking about trademarks and copyrights and patents and even trade secrets. And trade secrets, are, I think, are also quite relevant for our conversation today. But the majority of this will be patents and the value that patents add to early stage tech companies 
and how that's going to help them achieve their business objectives over time. Brilliant. Let's just bring Guy in here for a second, because Guy, you know, from from building multiple, you know, tech startups, did you ever, you know, do you resonate with what Keegan was saying there about like operating on a tight budget and making IP or kind of patents, as you're saying, not so much of a priority? Have you learned any lessons uh, along along the way? Yeah, totally. When, whenever I start working with a startup and I talk about patents and talk about IP, A, I think going to Keegan's point you made earlier, people still have the slightly old-fashioned view that it's really hard to patent software and, and so on. And I'm sure Keegan will talk about maybe not giving away his trade secrets, but just talk at a high level as to how he, you know, how he his firm deals with that. But yeah, it's, it's always an interesting conversation because, you know, People don't see the value in it and how important it is. And, you know, part of my job is maybe, and not, you know, all the companies, as you're aware, that I work with or I own, I invest in, obviously, and I always have the conversations with the various teams to say that actually IP, we have to start to have an IP strategy from the get-go. Now, it might be really limited to begin with, but it gives us a degree of protection. Again, you know, Keegan will go into a bit more detail than I will about these things. But it is a conversation I have with everybody that I work with because I believe really strongly that it's a little bit of a gold rush at the moment. You know, if you don't, if you've got this new technology in this new area of a, a sector and you don't trademark it, somebody else will. And that brings inherent problems. You know, they, you, you could be stepping on their feet if they protected it uh, and actually have to start paying them a license fee, even if you came up with the idea first. There's all sorts of kind of things to think about. So IPs, having an IP strategy is something that every startup I work with, we have, and we do as much as we can forward at that particular time but I, and make it as important as features within the product because you can build all the features in the product you want and spend all that money. But if you haven't protected the the idea in some way, shape or form and have a, a strategy to further protect it on an ongoing basis, then you might be wasting your time and your money. Right. Is there an example of uh, businesses that, that's happened before? Keegan, maybe do you have an example or a story to share of you know, what's the worst case scenario of when this is not taken care of in those early stages? Well, I think Guy actually brings up a great point about the software piece here. And that's that whether or not you're pursuing patents in Europe or in the United States, there's very specific rules that govern what is and what is not patentable. And it was and can sometimes still be held that or is common for folks to think that software is very challenging to patent. And Certainly, like in the United States, for instance, like in, mm, around 2013, 2014, things did become quite challenging because there were some major rule changes about what could be patented that disrupted software in particular and how easy or how hard that became to patent. However, it was still very much possible to patent. And the same thing is true in Europe as well. While there's a lot of discussion about, oh, well, that's not patentable or you can't patent this algorithm, you can patent processes and methods. And software processes and methods are very common to patent. It's very much possible to do it. And it's very much a necessity for, for companies to do it and to consider. Even if you don't have patents, my personal feeling is that every company needs to have an IP strategy, whether or not that's to pursue things or not. 
you need to consider what's important and if it is something that's going to play a major role at whatever stage it is that we're at. And then getting to your question, Ivan, about do I know any stories of tech startups who neglected this? This is, I'm going to do my best to jog my memory here, but I'll go ahead and call out some big names. So one would be Google. Google was very anti-patent in the early days, as many renegade software developers are, right? Stick it to man, not going to get all these government, you know, sanctioned patents or whatever. We're going to go do our own thing and we're going to change the world, darn it, until you start getting sued. And then (laughs) your, your tone changes. And until you start taking out investor dollars and investors who want their dollars protected and that want to be able to have the security of having a patent and protecting that area, you know, area of doing so. So there's a lot of utility in holding patents. But anyway, so Google in the early days was very anti-patent. Where this became particularly relevant, though, was in the early days of the cell phones. When Google entered the, the cell phone market, they had not pursued any patents in the cell phone area, or at least not many. And they had an option to buy a fairly you know, expansive portfolio. And these numbers don't, these numbers, anything that I say today could may or may not be accurate. <laughs> these numbers are certainly, these we'll numbers are certainly off the top of my head. Don't, you know. Sure, sure. But I think that it was, they had the option to buy like around 2.3 billion or something like that. The, the number of pads they thought, this price is ridiculous, way too much money. And so they declined to do that. They're like, we'll just go buy it from someone else or this price is too high. Well, then Apple and a bunch of other large technology companies got together and they formed this entity that would go and buy all those patents to block Google from getting into that market, right? Google ended up having to pay 13, a little over $13 billion for a portfolio in the end in order to remain competitive, right? So that was in part because of their lack of starting with getting patents in the beginning and then questioning the value of the patents that they had options to buy in the early stage. Now, this is a big, obviously, a, a massive dollar amounts and kind of an extreme example. Another interesting example that I'll use is a, a company called Job.com, which is a, a, UK, a, a company formed in the UK in 2012, I believe. It was previously called My Job Matcher. And they had the opportunity to buy the domain job.com. One of the founders moved to Austin, Texas. And these guys had no idea about the value of IP. They'd heard about patents a little bit, that there could be some value there for them. And they were curious, genuinely curious about it, mainly because they had bought a small HR tech company that had a couple patents. It was actually a client of ours that they had purchased. And they were like, hey, what's the value of these? And we started to talk with them about how they could obtain a patent portfolio. And then they could utilize that portfolio to get IP backed. Uh, they could collateralize their IP in order to get debt. And we, it, within, a, within the period of a year, going from them having ba- only the patents that they had purchased from this other company, which was like two, to having between 45 and 60 patents. So this was in within 12 months, we had applied for 45 to 60 patents. 
And then we'd gotten them a valuation on their patent portfolio of $250 million. And then we're able to get them offers of $125 million, 50% to value loans for that. And they ended up not taking the option to take all that money and took a portion of it, but it was a massive value creation thing. So it, it kind of gets at that question, like, it's not just what happens if we don't do that, right? What happens if we don't do that is we're missing out on lots of funding opportunities. We're missing out on lots of growth. For instance, back in February, PitchBook, who some of you guys may be familiar with, put out this white paper. And in that white paper, they detail how like the valuation sizes for companies, especially, this is very interesting, at least to me, especially at the angel deal level, the difference between companies that have patents and that, and that don't have patents is 93.2%. It's 93.2% larger for the companies that had patents. That's a significant, that's a massive valuation difference, right? And this is across all the different companies that are registered on PitchBook, right? So this is all aggregated data that they're taking that's available to them. And then, yeah, it's crazy. And then the amount of money that companies are able to raise, you know, depending on the deal size, right? Like at the angel size, it's almost 50% larger. For the seed, same thing, 51.5% at the seed stage. And 73% larger for early stage, think A or B round, and 71% larger for uh, a C or D. And then still same thing, 50% for the venture growth round. So these are massive, massive differences. And, and there's there's a list of tons of other statistics, but really what it points to, and it seems a bit self-serving for me to name off those statistics, but it's really just that we want to see other companies be successful. And it is almost darn near impossible to be a company that's going to successfully raise money and to achieve the valuations and the success that you want to be able to achieve without having a very pointed and strategic IP strategy, in particular with PATS. If I can just add to that, so from a sort of startup stroke, early stage, high growth company point of view, you know, that investment, and it's relatively small in the scheme of things, in having A, an IP strategy, and then B, having maybe a couple of patents that give you broad protection uh, of some of your, your ideas and processes, then to have a such significant increases in valuations like the numbers that Keegan's just reeled off there, how much money does that save you and how much equity does that save you when you go for investment? You know, So if your valuation's almost doubled compared to what it would have been without the patents, then you're going to get so much more bang for your buck when you come to raise money. So you can either raise more money for the same level of equity or you can reduce the equity drain and still raise the same amount of money. So that relatively small investment at that early stage, when you come to do your Series A or your you know, Seed Plus or whatever it is, then you're going to get so much better value for money. So that in itself, that's that's one reason only, and there's a number of reasons, but for that reason only, it's worth doing, never mind the other benefits you get from patents. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just from a, from an investor's perspective, though, Guy, I'd be really interested to find out, like, when you're looking at tech startups to potentially invest in as like a part of your vetting process, is, is IP or having an IP strategy something that you, you consider to be mandatory now, knowing the, the numbers? 
I, I don't think it's mandatory. Maybe it should be, <laughs> but I don't think it is yet. But there are use cases to say that maybe it's not appropriate for everybody. But I would say as a general rule of thumb, absolutely. I think as an investor, if I see a company that has understood the importance of protecting its ideas and its IP, then A, I'm going to think more highly of them and I'm more likely to invest. But also it kind of mitigates some of the risk of investing because having some patterns from the outset and having an IP strategy means that you're on top of that kind of concept of making it really hard for other companies to play in your part. Now, if you do that, that mitigates risk from an investment point of view. So it's one of the ways you can mitigate risk for investors. And again, if you mitigate risk for investors, you're more likely to get an investment and you're more likely to get a, a higher valued investment than you would ordinarily. Just to double click on that real quick too, the way that that happens in practical terms that we see on our end is let's say, you know, listen, not every startup makes it, unfortunately. And in that, so not every investment is a great investment, although we'd like them all to be. It just doesn't happen that way. But let's say now that you have a significant patent portfolio and the company needs to wind down or go out of business. From an investor perspective and where you're trying to dissolve that liability or dissolve that risk that there can be an investing in this company, like in the previous example I gave with job.com, let's say that they take on $50 million of investment but they have a patent portfolio that's valued at $250 million, the investor could feel fairly confident that even when the company is winding down and doesn't have a lot of leverage from which to monetize their patents from, that they'll still likely be able to monetize those patents and be able to pay back a large portion, if not all of what, to be able to get back a lot of the investment that was put in, right? So it's not like that, you know, if the company winds down, that now the patents have no value. If the company winds down, you can still extract the value out of that IP through a variety of different channels. That's that's really interesting to know. And yeah, again, just another reason why, you know, you can turn something like a patent into, some, into an asset as opposed to just something that it, you know, I suppose dissolves with the organization. Yeah, I'm glad that you used that word too, Ivan, because that's that's really what it's become, especially over time. There's been a lot of talk for multiple decades about IP being its own asset class, but it's this asset class that shows up as a soft asset on the balance sheet. However, over the last decade, there's been enough publicly available patent sales data and publicly available royalty rates set by the courts in almost every jurisdiction all across Europe, all across the United States, and several other jurisdictions throughout the world, where we're able to reliably come up with a nice uh, bell curve for a min, median, and max on what the value of a particular patent within a particular industry would be. So it's not just across all industries. You can do it even industry specific, and we can get pretty specific with it and have numbers that are infa infallible and able to back up very well. So then you can leverage that into being able to take on debt investment to help you bring in on VC dollars, to help you drive up the value and get a higher multiple for an acquisition or a, you know, a, P, uh, a PE exit, or even being able to get higher rates on an IPO should a company go public. So the shift there is going from this kind of soft asset where there's 
a multitude of ways of calculating what that value is to now something that can at least at the bottom end be able to say, you know what, this was the averages across this industry of what patent sales were. That number is real. And so, and, and from that, then we can back out real cash, real money for these companies in, in a number of ways, which was something that just wasn't possible outside of kind of this device components, you know, cell phone device components industry. And this has all changed the last 15 years, I'd say. That's awesome. Really interesting. I've got one final question before we, we wrap things up because we're, we're running low on time. But I'm curious to know where the line gets drawn between something that, especially when it comes to AI, right, with, with software and with a lot of software now, especially like open source stuff, like what is the line, where's the line gets drawn between something that can be patented and something that is just freely available for everyone? Like for something like Chad GPT, for instance, and this is sure, I guess that's where I was going with that. Yeah, I'm going to qualify everything that I've said so far and what I'm about to say with it. This is not legal advice by any means or anything. It shouldn't be construed as legal advice. (laughs) We'll put a disclaimer in the show. My lawyer (laughs) disclaimer, I have to give everything. (laughs) But listen, like Chad GPT, their whole game is that they want this to be made available for everyone, right? Like this is a proprietary thing that they've developed but they also want it to be available to the masses. And so my guess is that there'll be some sort of layers of protection for them that they you know, utilize some sort of IP protection for, but then do things like Tesla did where they said, hey, listen, we've got hundreds and hundreds of patent families, but as long as you're not using them in a way that we don't disagree with, we're going to let you use them, right? Elon Musk kind of famously has this patent pledge, but you know, really all it is is says, as long as you guys don't make me mad, I won't sue you. And it's not a promise that he won't sue. He just said, well, that's a bit of a tight, wa- tight rope to walk. I yeah, it's really imagine. just, it was some very clever marketing, which he is the master. Of, so we can all take notes from that. But <clears throat> I think what's more important for investors and folks that would be listening to this show, though, is that where are the specific markets that this AI tool is going to be applied, right? So chat GPT is its own thing, but now taking chat GPT, a lot of companies that we see pop up today are a chat GPT wrap applied to a very specific industry sector, right? Now, now you've got something that's worth protecting because it's not chat GPT. It's a very specific use case for chat GPT that required some additional manipulations in order to get the data that's going to come up. And most likely those things will be patentable. And most likely you'll want to patent those things in order to protect the livelihood of the business and to hopefully try to prevent other market entrants from getting into your space. One nice thing about having patents is that you can also be the gatekeeper for that particular technology, where if you hold a lot of the seminal early IP in a particular industry, even if it's a chat GPT wrapped, whatever in manufacturing technology or e-commerce, whatever it is, if you're able to get a bunch of patents around that in that area, there's a high likelihood that you'll be able to serve as the gatekeeper for all the new market entrants and where they'll either have to take a license or maybe you use it for M&A in that area or just to stop them at all. But there'll be options. That's also helpful. Thank you, Keegan. That's a really important point, actually. You know, you, a couple of things I wanted to pick on just very quickly, Adam. I know you want to wrap this up, but it's a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I know. I know. Keep going. That's no, fine. We got a few minutes. We got a few minutes. <laughs> 
It can actually become another revenue stream. You know, um, if you do as Keegan suggestions, you know, as a startup, you might have a couple of patents. And if you've got an IP strategy and then you begin, you know, as you bring investment rounds in and you allow for some of that investment round money to then further your patent portfolio, then you're building value into the company. But you're also, you know, you, you, you're giving yourself more and more protection so that you've got a really kind of wide coverage of the areas you specialize in, which means that the only way other people can come into that marketplace is if they license the ability to do so from you. So it can become a revenue stream, a bit like the the Elon Musk example. You, you can choose to who to let in. Yeah, it dissolves the risk, just like you were saying before too, Guy, because now if you can control the market entrance, right? What will we do about other market forces? Well, this is what we've done. We've invested in this asset that we can stop others from entering our space. And that's how we're going to prevent them from taking our market share and how we're going to continue to grow on the financial model that we're pitching you. There's one final point I wanted to make, which again, I think is a really important one. And I only came across it a few weeks ago when I was talking to uh, one of uh, Keegan's team. So Keegan's team are doing a strategy report for one of the companies I'm working with. And Steve, who is doing this for us, made the point that not only did they look at the patents that are out there and therefore, you know, you can then build your strategy kind of around that for the areas you want to protect. They can also look for gaps in the marketplace that you may want to consider getting a patent for either for now or for a later date so that, again, you've got that kind of full coverage or as much coverage as you can possibly get. So you do two things then. One is that you don't step on anyone else's shoes and have to pay license fees to anybody else because you're aware of the patents that are around there and you can, you know, you can build your business model and business strategy around that rather than having to build it over it. And secondly, by identifying the areas that haven't been taken yet and then filing patents to cover those areas you give yourself the maximum number of options moving forward. So that was a, a really a bit of an eye I hadn't thought of before until literally a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's a good point. Just for anyone listening, I was going to say, if they wanted a, to follow an example of a company who's doing what Keegan says about finding, you know, using ChatGPT model to go into a specific marketplace and then sectioning that marketplace off, we did an interview with someone called Georgia Kirk, who's building a company called Cleotech, who's using AI to revolutionize the book writing process. So that's a great example. If anyone's interested, they could go and check that episode out as well. Right. I'm going to call it there, guys. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Keegan, absolute masterclass in IP. Thank you so much. And Guy, good as ever to see you again. Yeah, great. And really appreciate you coming on board today, Keegan. Thank you, Ivan. Thanks again for listening to Fast Growth Funding. Don't forget to subscribe for instant access to new episodes and follow EHE Ventures on LinkedIn for regular insights and updates on the world of AI investments. If you are interested in learning more about EHE Ventures or the AI Early Stage Growth Fund, then let's chat. Just click the link in the show notes below, head over to our landing page, register interest, and we will spark up a whole conversation with you. Speak soon.